I want to put up a statistic or a number up on the screen for you this morning to consider. This is, this is now the beginning of a teaching series that I've just been felt convicted to, to pursue. And some of you I've already had some conversation with about these concepts, but it's just something that I came across a couple of weeks ago and I felt really, really strong about it. And uh, this number I'm going to put up on the screen, 22.6. What, is, what number is that? Anyone know? A marathon. Not quite. I wondered if somebody would think that. 26.2 is a marathon. This is a different number. This is a statistic. This is a percentage. This is the percentage of individuals living in Bangor who are living in poverty. That's quite an alarming number, isn't it? That means that more than one out of every five persons you encounter in Bangor or living in Bangor is living in poverty. Poverty, the definition of poverty, is simply the inability to have the basic needs of your life met. So whether it's food or shelter or clothing. So one out of every five persons living in our city is living in poverty. That, however is not as extreme as a place just 10 minutes up the road from us. Because 25% of people living in Old Town are living in poverty. So that means, again, one out of every four persons you meet, if you are in Old Town, is living in poverty. In fact, Old Town and Bangor are two of the three most impoverished cities in Maine. When I came across these stats recently, I was, I was quite startled by it. There's good news, and that is poverty is going down in the world, but that does not mean that there are not a lot of impoverished people still. And your story, Paula, just jumped out at me when you were sharing your, your own upbringing. Why do I bring these ideas up to you? You know, a few weeks ago, I was, uh, I was, I was praying, I was wrestling, I was grappling with God, and I was saying to myself, You know, what would our church look like in 10 years if God were to be working and he were to be poured out and his his power were to be manifested in our midst? And so I was deep in prayer and I was wrestling and I was was grappling and I was writing in my prayer journal. I said, you know, it would be wonderful if we had this many people attending on Saturday mornings. Wouldn't that be awesome? And I I, I put a number in, in my little prayer journal. I said, wouldn't it be awesome if we were a multiplying congregation that started multiplying and having other congregations in the greater Bangor area, in downtown Bangor and Brewer and Orono and Old Town. Wouldn't that be awesome? And wouldn't it be awesome if we had all these students at our school in 10 years? And I, and I was just getting really excited and impassioned about it. And then all of a sudden something hit me, and it was this. But what impact are we having on our community? What impact are we having on the lives of those outside of our walls? So many times we think about success when it comes to a church in terms of how many people are showing up in our building. So many times we think of success in terms of how many people are giving their hearts to Jesus. But what would happen if we understood that success in God's eyes is determined by how we are impacting 
the community around us. I'm going to put it in these terms right here. If our church grows, but our community is not characterized by less poverty, less crime, less drug addiction, less divorce, less racism, and conversely, more peace, more love, more reconciliation, and more togetherness, our church growth, quote-unquote, is like a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. What do you think about that idea? That's, you know, there's so many of us churches that just serve ourselves. And it's almost like the community doesn't even know we exist, other than there's a bunch of people that show up to that building once a week. I was actually, as I was going through my devotional time, there was this quote that I was confronted with in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6. And the message puts it in this terminology. Jesus gives this very direct command. Give away your life. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. So what God is calling us to do is not to be a community of people who are focused on making ourselves bigger and having more people come. It's not even just trying to get people to to simply believe in the name of Jesus. All those things are important, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what God is really calling us to do is to give away our church, to empty our church so that we can go out into the world and bless the world and, and meet the needs of those who are actually living in our community. There was this well-known theologian in Germany. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he said it this way, the church is the church only when it exists for others. So we exist not to grow ourselves. We exist not to build ourselves up. It's in giving away ourselves. It's in emptying our church where we are being used by God. What's interesting is I was starting to grapple with these ideas. I've been going through the book of Luke the Gospel of Luke, which was, which was one of the, the four books of the Bible that was written to describe the life of Jesus. And I started noticing this pattern going on in the book of Luke. And it coincides directly with what we're looking at this morning. And I want to run through a number of verses from the book of Luke that pull back the curtain on this reality. The, that, that Luke is very, very focused on and concerned with this distinction between rich and poor. Now, Luke is not trying to engage in class warfare, although one scholar I was reading in preparation for today's teaching said, you know, if we didn't know any better, we would say that that Luke was trying to promote Bernie Sanders' candidacy. Now, I'm not wanting to get political, but this is what the scholar said. That's not, that's not at all what Luke is trying to do. He didn't know about Bernie Sanders. But, but as we're going to learn, Luke and all of Scripture is concerned with holding these, these two realities in tension. That, that God is very concerned about our personal spiritual development. 
He is concerned about us growing in him and and worrying about salvation and worrying about discipleship and worrying about growing in Jesus. But he's also concerned with us trying to bless and grow our communities and trying to bless and grow those who are impoverished. And so he sets, in the book of Luke, he sets this this, this disparity, this, this dichotomy between rich and poor. And you'll notice it starts right from the very beginning. We're going to look at some, some of these verses, and we're going to come back to some of these verses later on in our different teachings. But notice, right there from the very beginning, this is what is known as the great Magnificat. This is what, this is what Mary is exclaiming when she has been told that she will give birth to the Messiah. Notice what she says. She says, God knocked tyrants off their high horses, pulled victims out of the mud. The starving poor sat down to a banquet. The callous rich were left out in the cold. This is what she's saying about her being, her being pregnant with the Messiah. She's, she's celebrating that God considers such a lowly poor person. And she's saying, you know what? God has bypassed the, all the rich and the, and the wealthy, and he's come and visited the poor. Notice what Jesus says when he comes on a Sabbath morning. He goes to a synagogue in Nazareth, and he, re- he stands up and he reads something from the book of Isaiah. Notice what it says in Luke. This is again Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 18. The scroll of Isaiah, the prophets, was handed to Jesus. That is to him, to Jesus. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the whom? To the poor. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. That the blind will see. That the oppressed will be set free. Jesus placed his ministry within the framework of blessing and serving those who were the outsiders, those who were the downtrodden, those who were the oppressed, those who were the poor. He said, this is what God has called me to do. And of course, if you were to continue to read the narrative, he, it says that he had folded the scroll and he sat down and all the eyes of those who were there were resting upon him. And then he said, today... The scripture is fulfilled. So Jesus recognized that his ministry was to bring that good news to the poor. Notice in Luke chapter 16, there's this parable that Jesus tells. It's a very well-known parable, and I'm going to be a little humorous here for a second, but no Seventh-day Adventist preacher has probably ever preached on this parable because of certain reasons, but I'm going to take a stab at it in a few weeks, okay? Because, look what happens, there was once a rich man who wore expensive clothes and every day ate the best food. But a poor beggar named Lazarus was brought to the gate of the rich man's house. The story goes on to tell, and again we'll unpack this in the future, the story goes on to tell that eventually the rich man, he dies. And he is, is having this dialogue. And so you'll, you'll understand why most Seventh-day Adventist preachers don't preach on the sermon. Those of you who are not as well-versed in this, uh, we'll, you can talk to me later. But, um, but the point is, this is a very, very interesting parable. But who is, who is being presented as the antagonist and the protagonist here? It's a very rich man and then there's a very poor man named Lazarus. So there's this, there's this dichotomy that Jesus sets up. Notice also in Luke chapter 18, the story of Zacchaeus. 
When Jesus saw this, he said, sorry, this is not the story of Zacchaeus, that's the next one. This is the rich young ruler. You know that story. Jesus says this, when Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what did the disciples say? He was speaking to the disciples here. They just shake their head and what did they say? Who then can be saved? And he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. But they're just so astounded that Jesus would make such a statement about the privileged, rich class. Now again, I was too quick to go to it, but in Luke chapter 19, there's this story. It's interesting because it just follows this experience of, of the, the rich young ruler who, who turns away because he had too many possessions. But then we come to another rich man named Zacchaeus. He had gotten his riches through, through fraudulent means, but when Jesus comes to him, it says, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. How many of you would be willing to take out your checkbook right now and say, okay, whatever I have in my bank account, I'm going to get half of it to the poor. That's what Zacchaeus did, though. So he said, I'm going to give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. So this is just a little, this is a little sneak peek, and this is a little survey of the reality that, that God has great concern, and he's focused on the well-being of the poor. He is concerned with the, the dangers that come with affluence. And we're going to unpack those things a little bit more. But I want to go back just for a minute to linger on this thought that Jesus shares in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Because this is, as many people understand, kind of the, the, the grand sermon that Jesus shares, the grand teaching. His ministry is just developing he has performed some miracles, and people are, are wondering what his ministry is all about, and they're wondering who he is, and, and, and they have these different ideas of who the Messiah will be, and, and who, what he will look like, and how he should act. And of course, Jesus himself was born in poverty, wasn't he? And we're going to unpack that a little bit more next week. But Jesus comes, and his ministry is about to be launched, and he finds himself on a mountainside with uh, thousands of people listening, waiting for him to uh, declare his ministry and to explain what he's all about. And he stands up, and he shares these startling words. And these are the very first words that come out of his mouth, as recorded in the book of Luke. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples, and he said... Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus basically starts his ministry, is totally disrupting their common thinking about rich and poor and wealthy and impoverished and, and educated and non-educated. And those who are of the upper class and those who are of the lower class, he stands up and he says, blessed are you, poor. Now that assumes, of course, that there were poor people in the audience, right? But Jesus had come to declare the good news to the poor. And he says, blessed are you, poor, 
for yours is the kingdom of God. And he goes down the line and he ticks off all of these characteristics of people who are the down and outers and he calls them blessed. What's interesting is that if you look at Luke chapter 6, which is where this is taken from, there's these, there's these words of blessing to different groups. And then after that, it's, it's followed by these woes to those who were of the other persuasion. Notice, for example, in verse 20 of Luke chapter 6, he says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In verse 24, he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. In verse 25, it says, Woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. Verse 21, he says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Jesus says in verse 25, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. In verse 22, he says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. In verse 26, he says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. So Jesus the, he, he brings out this, this very dichotomous way of life. And he's pointing to those who are on the outside as those he is calling on to the inside. And he's calling those who are poor, those who are blessed. And he's calling those who are rich as those being in an unfortunate situation. You say, well, what is this all about? What is this all about? We're going, we're going to unpack this as we move forward. But one of these thoughts that, that has been ringing in my ears, and I shared this actually in a, in a talk a few weeks ago, this thought I was confronted with recently, and it's by an author that I've really enjoyed reading through the years, and this is what this author proposes. This is, this is reflecting on Matthew 25. I spoke on this a few weeks ago, but this is reflecting on Matthew 25. When the nations are gathered before him, there will be but two classes, and their eternal destiny will be determined by what they have done or have neglected to do for him in the person of the poor and suffering. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty sobering proposal, isn't it? That when we come and, and we encounter God, will he be able to say, you have treated me with love and grace? And of course, Matthew 25 says, well, what do you mean? He says, well, what, what you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Now you're saying, well, hold on here. This sounds like an awful lot of, of like merit-based work stuff, right? We, we, like you're, just, you're just changing maybe one thing that, you know, the do's and don'ts, right? You're just changing this for one thing for another. Like this is a, maybe a more socially progressive like do's and don'ts list, right? <laughs> and yet when the love of Jesus grips our hearts, we're going to look at this next week. When the love of Jesus grips our hearts, the book of uh, uh, the author Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? He became poor. That we, through his poverty, might become rich. So when God's love envelops our hearts, when it grabs a hold of us, we want to live out a life of generosity and grace. So, a few years ago, I was, I was um, 
listening to one of my favorite authors. His name is N.T. Wright. Some of, some of us in this audience have enjoyed reading a thing or two by N.T. Wright. But N.T. Wright is a very, very um, accomplished New Testament scholar. So he knows a lot about the New Testament. And um, he writes like five books a year that are really, really deep and scholarly. And he's just really prolific. And so I went and heard him speak. And there are some people within Christianity that have been a little worried about him because he seems to be promoting what is some people call the, a, a social gospel. And um, a social gospel is, is, is troubling to some people because it seems like all people care about is just trying to improve life on earth. And there's no regard for heaven and the future and whether a person is saved or not. And so I was curious about this, and I stood up during the question and answer time, and I said, um, Dr. Wright, there have been some people who have, who have accused you of just promoting a social gospel. And you're not as worried about whether a person's saved or whether they have a relationship with Jesus. And I said, are you kind of turning your back on traditional Christian theology? I, I said it in nicer terms, right? I mean, this is a very, very well-known, uh, educated man. And he said, well, it depends what you mean by traditional Christian theology. He said, if by traditional Christian theology, you go back to William Wilberforce. You know who William Wilberforce was? He was an English parliamentarian who for 40 years, year after year after year, sought to bring an end to slavery in England. And he had such an incredible social conscience. But you know what? Wilberforce was a man who was deeply pious, and he was deeply into his spiritual journey and growth. And that was relevant because I was just reading a book by William Wilberforce when Dr. Wright said this. And these words came up in my mind from that book. William Wilberforce's conversion to Christianity was without question for him the central and most important event of his life. Indeed, as far as Wilberforce was concerned, faith in Jesus Christ was the central and most important thing in life itself. So it can hardly surprise us, check this out, it can hardly surprise us that sharing this faith with others was central and important to Wilberforce too. And so everywhere he went, And with everyone he met, he tried as best he could to bring the conversation around to the question of what? Eternity. Wilberforce, check this out. Wilberforce would prepare lists of his friends' names and and next to the entries make notes on how he might best encourage them in their faith if they had faith and toward a faith if they still had none. He would list subjects to bring up with each friend that might launch them into a conversation about spiritual issues. So, like, he was worried about people's salvation. He would put these little notes in his pocket and say, okay, I'm going to be meeting with Oscar today. What are some topics that I can bring up to help grow and disciple Oscar? But notice what else Wilberforce was about. The carping accusation sometimes leveled at Christians that they were so heavenly-minded as to be no earthly good would be leveled at Wilberforce many times in the years to come. But no one could it have been less true? 
His new perspective made him about as zealous to improve the social conditions of the world around him as anyone who has ever lived. In Wilberforce's day, it was devout Christians almost exclusively who were concerned with helping the poor, bringing them education, and acting as their advocates, and who labored to end the slave trade among other evils. So Wilberforce kept these two things in tension. It wasn't like it was just about helping the poor and helping the needy and helping those around us. And who cares if they know about Jesus? It was both and. And so you and I can grow in Jesus. And we can pursue discipleship. And we can pursue the, the, the own, our development of our own spiritual lives. And because of that, we want to benefit others around us. We want to we raise awareness of those who are the downtrodden and the poor. And so what I, have, what I have thought in my own mind is, what if as a church, the way we determined if we were living out the mission of Jesus is not only how many people are showing up here or how many people are committing to Jesus, but what, what about if we not only looked at baptismal numbers, but we looked at the poverty rate. And we said, you know, we will know that we have experienced success in pursuing the mission of God if that 22.6 goes down to 20 or to 18 or to 16 or to 12 or to 10. And we view the poverty rate of our city as much a barometer of us understanding we have, have been pursuing the mission of God as anything else we do. And that's just, that's just one number that is, is, is among many. It's just kind of like an epitome of what it would look like to be on God's mission in the world. So as we, as we continue together the next number of weeks, maybe you've already tuned out and checked out and said, okay, I got it, good, got to be nice to the poor people. Well, we're going to unpack that a little bit more because it's not about writing a check only and, and, and providing services. It's about entering into life with, with people. And there's some really neat passages in Scripture that God has, has, uh, has impressed me with as I've studied out this issue that I was blown away by when I came across them. I said, wow, I didn't know that was in the Bible. And so I'm excited to be able to share those with you. But right now, the big idea I want us all to remember is that God cares intimately about our interactions with and our attitude about and our journey with those who are not as fortunate and privileged as we are. And he wants us to live out a life of love and and thinking about their eternal well-being as well, right? Make sense? All right, so that's the setting the table for what we're going to explore the next few weeks. 